have done over the last 30 years have prepared me in some strange way for this new terrain I find myself in. It's not an unused muscle in my life. And I didn't know that would be the case until I realized at some point that I have been practicing for this for a long time. Oh, You're listening to The Sill Podcast. Perspectives on Art and Technology with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 101, The Undefinable Spirit, Andrea Bird, Dancing on the Curve of Life. Well, welcome to the podcast, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Undefinable Spirit here on The Sill Podcast. We have a truly undefinable and wonderful spirit today as our guest, Andrea Bird. And I want to start in terms of introducing Andrea with a quote from her website, quote from Van Gogh, the great painter. And he said, if you truly love nature, you will find beauty everywhere. And I think that describes Andrea perfectly. But a bit about her history before we start our chat with her. From 1984 to the present, Andrea Bird's art has been shown in many group and solo exhibitions throughout Ontario. She's been teaching the art of collage and encaustic since 1990, running with her partner in waxy crime, Daniel Byrne, the Hive Gallery at the Alton Mill in Alton, Ontario. Andrea approaches art making intuitively, following her inclination into new territory with each piece telling her where it needs to go. She says, quote, the route can be effortless or challenging. Either way, I am pulled along, fascinated by the process. Andrea fell in love with encaustic several years ago, using beeswax hardened with Damar resin and mixed with oil paint. She says, quote, this luscious, engaging medium fits for me as it allows for a dialogue to take place between myself and the wax. This back-and-forth nature of painting with wax opens me to the mystery of what cannot be known but only glimpsed at. I let go of attachment, which for me is an ongoing loosening of expectation. And this idea of Andrea's of holding loosely is a theme that inspires much of her work and life. Welcome to the podcast, Andrea Bird. Thanks, Harry. It's great to be here. Hi, so, Peter. Hi, Andrea. First question, Andrea. I love your artwork. I can't deny that, and many people do. And it's clear that you put your heart and soul into every piece you work on. And I just wonder, where does that come from? I mean, were your parents a major influence in the direction you took towards the world of art and creativity? I would say that they were. They were very supportive of my art from a really early age. And they also had really supportive and creative grandmothers who kept art supplies around for me when I would visit them. And my parents signed me up for every art class going when I was a young child. So that was always something that I felt 
was the given. My mother became very ill and almost died when I was eight years old. And I think art for me at that time became a kind of a healthy escape, a place to focus my energies into something that was just for me because I became prematurely put into more of a caregiver role. Mm. And uh, so it was a place to explore. It gave me freedom and joy. There were no rules, really. I always felt that if I had any rules, I could break them. Mm. It was one place where I had a little bit of control, maybe, in what, what I wanted to express. But it certainly very quickly, as I grew up, became a way of making sense of the world and finding my place in it. And still to this day, it plays that role really beautifully. It helps illuminate and make manifest whatever it is that I'm struggling with Mm -hmm. or coming to terms with or on the edge of. It is a fine companion. And speaking of painting, you do something which is kind of offbeat to the world of painting, and that is you actually dance on top of some of your pieces. How did you get the idea for that unusual way of putting yourself into your work? Well, I guess I should tell a little bit about what it's like. It's working with layers of beeswax that have been colored with oil paint, and each layer is fused with a blowtorch, an iron, or a heat gun. So it's this beautiful, malleable, fragrant surface that will receive almost anything. So I was a mixed-media collage artist before I landed into the encaustic world. Mm. And um, when I found out that I could use wax instead of glue to hold things together and to be create a rich and layered surface that was always alive, like the surface, you know, 10 years later, you can go back into a piece by warming it up and digging back into it. And so it doesn't harden to the point where it's not accessible anymore. Oh. And I love that about it. Mm. It's also very archival. It's an ancient technique that's been around for thousands of years. Really? Yeah, as long as there have been people and beeswax and pigment, I think people have been playing around with it because there's something about beeswax that is so magical. It's, Mm. As I said, it's fragrant, it's moldable. Sculptors have been using it for Mm -hmm. eons at some point in their process. So this medium, I fell in love with it literally, and I still have yet to fall out of love with it. 18 years later, that's how long I've been doing it. I've always described Encaustic as a really good friend, you know, that's always up for an adventure. And so, like a good friend, you'd say, hey, you know, do you want to do this? And it's like, yeah, let's do it. So, in Caustic, you know, I thought one day, I wonder if I could dance on the surface. Because dancing has long been a really important thing to me. It helps me get out of my head and into my body. It bypasses overthinking. It often illuminates things for me. It gives me ideas for paintings. Because I move into a place that's different than regular being when I dance, when my body is moving to music. Mm-hmm. So I would lay down layers of beeswax on a big piece of plywood. They were usually big pieces because I had to have room to move. And I'd put it out by the bonfire pit that we have on our property. And I would stomp around in the ashes on in bare feet. And then I would just go crazy and start dancing on the surface. And the wax held the charcoal dance beautifully and got me completely out of my head. I had no concept of what it was going to turn into. So one thing I've been teaching, I've I've been teaching art for about half my life. And one of the things that I always talk to my students about is letting go of attachment to outcome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you ever do a James Brown or a Michael Jackson routine on your (laughs) canvas? (laughs) 
Absolutely. You know, you mean my version of it, which would be extremely amateur. The more spastic version. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was so much fun, though, because I would be left with this charcoal drawing that my feet had made with footprints and twirls and spins and dragging my feet through all these incredible, rich, juicy drawings that I had made almost unconsciously and then come in on top with layers of colored wax. The nice thing about encaustic is you can cover up some of the original layers might disappear under the wax, but other ones can be illuminated and pulled up so you can dig back down to reveal what's below. So dancing on the wax, I've done, I don't know, maybe about a dozen or so dancing paintings, Mm. and I really love them. The nice thing about learning that way of being more spontaneous And as I was about to say, teaching art for so long, I'm always talking about letting go of attachment to outcome. And it turns out that that's the thing I needed to learn most. You know, they say we teach what we need to learn. Mm -hmm. And my growing edge, as I've come to call it, and I would reference it this way with my students, we all have one, a place where we're not comfortable. And mine is in that, leaping off the edge, letting go of attachment to outcome. So being more connected to the process Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. than the outcome. And ironically, or paradoxically, as we do that, the outcome tends to take care of itself. Uh And certainly, living in the situation that I'm going through right now, in dying, I am definitely learning how to let go of attachment to outcome. I mean, that is a fierce teacher, but we can touch on that later. Speaking of detachment and dancing in relation to your cancer diagnosis, you say that dying in a death-phobic culture is lonely at times and that you want to share as much of your experience as possible. Can you talk a bit about your experience with cancer, you know, the journey and the process you went through in dealing with the possibility and imminence of death? Uh, Sure. Breast cancer came into my life almost seven years ago, which was a huge shock. It was not on my radar. I'm sure it is for everybody that gets that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. My world flipped upside down. But I I forged ahead with chemo, radiation, surgery, hoping for the best. Two years ago, I found out that it had metastasized to my bones and my lungs, Mm. which was a bigger shock, actually, uh, because I was feeling relatively well, except for a small nagging pain in my hip. So that was almost an indescribable time Mm -hmm. coming to terms with one's own mortality, as David White so beautifully says. We must apprentice ourselves to the curve of our own disappearance. Oh, mm. Isn't that gorgeous? And yeah. I, I think of that often because it's exactly what it feels like. It feels like I am on an arc. I'm going to come full circle when I die. And those little tiny movements around the arc are almost imperceptible at times, but other times they're very apparent when dealing with pain or discomfort or Uh, energy levels. So you you sometimes come face to face with the reality that life is never going to be the same way it was before. Mm -hmm. And when one can envision one's own death, there's a shift in how we think about our lives. It's, It's a very finite thing. And that's very real and tangible and not an abstract thought as it was before. I mean, we all know we're going to die. But to know it in your very being, I think it feels different to me than before that diagnosis came. So there has been so much that I've learned 
from this experience. And when you were in the hospital getting treatments, you did a lot of dancing. <laughs> Mostly I was dancing by myself. Before and after every radiation treatment, I would pick three or four songs that really filled me with joy and energy, and I would dance in the garden in front of the Grand River Hospital. It's kind of a sandwich. Radiation treatment was something positive. So before each treatment, I would dance, and I would dance directly looking at the chemo suite, which looks out over the garden, mm-hmm. putting my energy to all the folks up there that were undergoing treatment, and I had been one of them at one time. That's what I was going to ask you. There's a beautiful video of this on your website, and I was going to ask you to tell us what inspired that. Well, it had been that I had been dancing throughout chemo, radiation, right from the very beginning. My husband even threw a dance party for me before chemo started because he knew how important it was to me, and then it helped me through chemo and radiation by kind of bringing something positive into the day. It wasn't only about this devastating thing that was happening. It was also now about finding time to dance and send positive energy to people in the hospital, Mm. both the people that work there, which I think is an incredibly difficult job, and the patients, of course. So about 25 of my friends, I just put out a call to friends who I knew wanted to come out. And so we met in front of the Grand River Hospital and we danced. And it was one of the most joyful memories I have of my life. It was incredible how many people showed up and how much fun it was. Box, box. Live life like you're gonna die. Because you're gonna. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. But you're gonna die. Maybe not today or even next year, but before you know it, you'll be saying, is this all there was? What was all the fuss? Why did I bother? Now, maybe you won't suffer, maybe it's quick, but you'll have time to think, why did I waste it? Why didn't I taste it? You'll have time, because you're gonna die. Yes, it's gonna happen because it's happened to a lot of people I know. My mother, my father, my loves, the president, the kings, and the pope. They all had hope, and they muttered just before they went, maybe. I won't go. Live life like you're gonna die. Because you are. Box, box. Dancing, facing the chemo treatment area. It's almost shamanic, if I can use that word. Sending these energies towards this building and this facility and the people in it, etc. Do you ever get that sense that you're doing something almost otherworldly? Oh, no, I've never thought of that before, Harry, but Mm. it certainly felt like, I don't know what the definition of shaman is exactly, but if it's about taking whatever is happening to you and wanting to reach out in some capacity to other people that are going through the same thing, or I'm sure that's not what shaman means, but kind of transforming an experience from the expected path into 
taking a, a slightly a side route where there is still joy and there's still love and there's still laughter in the midst of difficulty. That has been very important for me to keep some kind of equilibrium and perspective throughout this experience. Mm-hmm. Because as I, I was thinking earlier, and I realized that everything in my life to date, every bit of wisdom, insight, learning that I've had in the last 58 years is coming to fruition now. It's coming, it's needed, mm-hmm. and then some. So I'm constantly living now on the limit of my growing edge, you know, that I spoke of earlier, where each day might bring a new symptom mm-hmm. or fear mm-hmm. or some emotional terrain to explore that is new to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful that I have been an artist because every time we step into a new painting, literally step into it with a dancing painting, but step into any painting, the blank canvas, it is an unknown territory and we don't know what's going to show up there. So I think all the thousands of paintings I've done over the last 30 years have prepared me in some strange way for this new terrain I find myself in. It's not an unused muscle in my life and I didn't know that would be the case until... I realized at some point that I have been practicing for this for a long time. Yeah, and you also say that living with dying is a fierce and relentless teacher. What's the lesson that you've kind of taken from this so far? Wow, that's a big, <laughs> that's a big answer. Um, I talked about letting go of attachment to outcome, mm-hmm. not only in my art, but in my life, because I have no idea how much longer I'm going to live. And I mean, none of us know that. But as I said, when it's a visceral, tangible thing, a reality in your everyday, that takes on a different weight than it does, I think, before I was diagnosed. Mm -hmm. So I am completely um, stepping into this place of not knowing how much time I have. So it makes planning anything difficult. And yet at the same time, I am forging ahead with plans because what else is there to do? I think because I'm hardwired as a teacher, and it has always been my goal to share whatever it is I learned about making art with my students, I seem to be now compelled to share whatever it is I'm learning with my students, with my friends, with my family, with anybody. Mm -hmm. Along the same vein, you say that everything comes down to love and connection. Mm -hmm. Your art clearly reflects that worldview. How do you keep that flame alive? through everything that you've gone through and are going through? Well, what I've noticed, Pete, is that the flame is only growing stronger as time goes by. Recognizing that everything comes down to love and connection is the flame. You know, it's not separate from it. Mm -hmm. So when that now becomes so paramount, so important, so in every single moment there is, there needs to be room for everything that shows up. So that could be vulnerability, fragility, emptiness. And then in the next moment, it might be fullness and feeling extremely alive. And the next moment is despair. You know, so it's kind of opening up to all of those things and living with the paradox that all of those can coexist. Mm -hmm. And when it boils down to recognizing that it's all about connection and love, we realize that we are love. That's really what we are at our core. And I've I've long felt that, but it's very clear and visceral to me now that that is the truth. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that flame just on its own, given this spaciousness and time, is just growing stronger. Being alive, you recognize it as a, a gift, like an incredible gift that we get to have for a short time. Mm-hmm. But I realize that my life is actually not my life. It is life living through me and it will go back from whence it came. So wherever it was that I was before, wherever I was before I was born, wherever I'm going after I die, I kind of think that's one big continuum. But I don't, of course, I don't know. I just have an inkling that it might be something like that. I don't really think we're meant to understand these mysteries. You have a special relationship, I understand, with poetry. Can you talk about that connection? What is it about poetry that helps you become more present? I've always loved, well, not always. I think starting with the cancer diagnosis, the first one seven years ago, poetry became a kind of a balm to my wound. It was like when I would read it, it would just be speaking so intimately and clearly to me about what exactly I was feeling. And being able to articulate things is very important to me. So the poetry helped me to do that by giving me metaphors to work with, beautiful words and rhythms. And I um, started to learn poetry by heart. I read a book called Saved by a Poem by Kim Rosen. Oh, yes. Great book. Mm. And she talks about learning poetry by heart is different than memorizing it because when it's learned by heart, that's where it lives, it's in our heart. So it's this um, beautiful companion that's with you all the time. So in the middle of the night, if I wake up and I'm afraid or my mind becomes over busy with worry or despair or anything that might be rising, the poem will pull me back to the present moment again and again and again, like um, almost like a mantra. It just mm-hmm. kind of pulls mm-hmm. me back to what is important. And the poems that I've learned are the ones that speak to me so personally and so beautifully. So it's incredible to me what a healing thing a poem can be. Is there a particular poem that you might be able to, I know I'm putting you on the spot, but is there a particular poem you might be able to share or part of a poem that has really touched you? Sure. I've got a bunch of them, but one of my very favorites is called The Way It Is, and it's by a poet named... Rosemary Watola Traumer, and she actually came up to Caledon last summer and did a poetry workshop with a bunch of us. We had a poetry and meditation weekend, and it's called The Way It Is by Rosemary Watola Traumer, and it goes like this. Over and over we break open, we break and we break and we open. For a while we try to fix the vessel, as if to be broken is bad, as if with glue and tape and a steady hand, we might bring things to perfect again, as if things were ever perfect, as if to be broken is not also perfect, as if to be open is not the path toward joy. That's the first verse of that Mm, poem. Beautiful. Beautiful, yeah. Yeah, it is. It really has been such an incredible comfort to me. And reading is another thing that's actually been a huge comfort. And as a our population is aging and dying. It seems like death is coming 
out of the closet in terms of being able to be talked about and written about mm-hmm. and sharing these experiences because there's a dearth of lived experience for us in terms of confronting and being, for most of us, I imagine, being with the dying, being with death, seeing dead bodies. You know, these are not part of our usual experience. So books are helping me, and Who Dies by Stephen and Andrea Levine is one of those books that's been a longtime friend. And he talks about how different cultures around the world have a different relationship with death, and one of them is, and so even though we're a very privileged culture, this is a place where we have some work to do. Hmm. And one culture he spoke of, I don't remember which now, has a death chant. So a child, when they're in utero, the mother would sing a song to them. As a small child, she would sing the song. The village would learn the song. Everybody would sing it to the child on special occasions. The child would learn it. And whenever dealing with a difficult situation in life, life-threatening or just an illness or whatever, they would sing this song. And it was known as their death chant. And then when they were dying, the whole village would sing the song to them as they died. And I thought, what a beautiful custom, you know? And that's what I long for. I think that's what I miss that is not available in, in our attitudes towards death. So I think poetry for me has become my death chant. It has become my companion that I can say now while I'm relatively well, and I can say it when I'm in pain or having a difficult time. I can say it on a great day when I'm rejoicing at being alive. It will see me through all of those times, and then it will accompany me into my death Mm -hmm. because it's just with me now always and that is an incredible gift that i did not see coming and speaking of gifts and your talents are obvious you just had a beautiful retrospective show at the paul morin gallery in alton celebrating Mm -hmm. 35 years of art making what's on the horizon for andrea bird that's a good question i have um laid aside teaching for the time being and wanting to focus on, as I said, writing some of these ideas that are starting to coalesce. During the retrospective, I was able to talk a few times about the same things that we're talking about now. And I found that I really loved to talk about this, which was a surprise to me. I keep being surprised by the things that dying is teaching me. And of course, I want to live long enough to share this learning. Mm -hmm. So if gifted with the time and energy over the next while, I would like to write some of these thoughts down. We're putting together a book from the retrospective that will be fleshed out with some of these ideas. I want to do more art. I want to do some big pieces. Uh, The biggest piece I've ever done was in the retrospective at five feet square. And I'd like to play around with the idea of working large over the coming time. I really want to spend time with my friends and family Mm -hmm. and really use my energy well because one of the things dealing with a cancer and on an emotional level, there's an energy drain and I think there's a physical drain as well. So energy has become something quite tangible and quite um, precious to me. I I have to kind of meet it out throughout the day and decide where it's going to go because there's only so much of it. Mm -hmm. And with all these things that you seem to have on the go and that you're heading toward, would a lot of this information and these projects and ideas and things that you're dealing with, would they be found on your website? And if so, would you care to give out any information 
as to where people can reach you or where they can find this information? It will be on my website once I've kind of got a clear idea of what it's going to look like. And my website is just andreabird.com. It's in need of an update, which the new work from the retrospective will be on there soon. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I feel that it is my privilege and responsibility to share what I'm finding out. It started out with the people that were close to me and my friends and close family. And now that feels like it's expanding a little bit, you Mm -hmm. know, after the retrospective. The retrospective that my husband, Daniel, put on was truly one of the most beautiful, generous gifts I've ever received. And it was wildly beyond my expectations about who showed up and what it was like to see all that art together in one place. Mm -hmm. Um, was a real gift. Well, listen, Andrea, it's been wonderful having you on the podcast and your beautiful spirit and sharing what you're experiencing, what you have experienced in art, in life, in dance, in poetry. It's a wonderful thing. And, uh, you know, keep on the track. I'd be happy to be your editor, as I said before, uh, if you do write (laughs) something. Quick question before we sign off. And we do this now regularly with our guests on the interview segments. If there's a particular tune or song that you would love to have us introduce the program today with, Mm. what might that be? Ooh. (laughs) Well, let's see. There's a couple. One would be Calling All Angels by Jane Sibbery. Mm -hmm. And the other one would be... It's a Talking Heads song, but it's covered by Bell Star, and it's in the Flash Mob video. It's This Must Be the Place. Okay. Okay. Cool. We'll work with that. Yeah. We'll definitely work with that. Either one or both. Mm-hmm. Everything that Harry said, plus more over and above the art, the personal side, and the optimism and the forces that go into giving people hope, which I'm really big on. So for me as well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with us today. And we'll talk soon. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. The Sill Podcast, Perspectives on Art and Technology, is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. Ooh.